Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Bonus word of the day. Welcome to Nothing Personal. This is the bonus pod, end of the month. We've talked about it. This is where people have rated and reviewed me. I appreciate you following me on Twitter at David P. Sampson. And then going on to Apple, five stars, please. And then if you review it and ask a question, I promise that at the end of every single month, I am going to do a bonus pod where I answer your questions. So the word of the day is meaningful. Meaningful as in, I meant what I said. It is meaningful to me that you've been willing to allocate your time to nothing personal and to think about the issues that we bring up and recognize that there's so much going on behind the scenes. And isn't it nice to have a voice, to have someone who's willing, and I'm more than willing, and I'm going to keep being able as long as you let me, willing to tell you what's happening every day, trending stories. But what this is, these are answering questions that you've actually asked me. Not so you want to talk to Samson. Those are the daily questions. These are sort of more broad questions. The first one is something that I never would have thought to bring up on Nothing Personal, and I appreciate the question. It's, what is my daily routine, and am I still training for marathons? So I actually thought it'd be interesting. I'm going to bring you through an exact day. I set an alarm on my iPhone, and I do not ever get woken by the alarm. My alarm is set to a song by Michael Buble called Everything. And I love that song. He wrote it for his then girlfriend, Emily Blunt, who's now married to the guy from The Office and Jack Ryan, John Krasinski. God, I wish I had Coke in my ear for this one. Coke is not a part of this bonus pod, by the way. I'm here with Mikey, and there's no way Mikey's going to talk in my ear. He's laughing, though. So the alarm is everything, Michael Buble. But it never goes off. Do you all, do you, do you all have that? Because I've had that since college, law school, high school. I never needed an alarm to wake me. For whatever reason, I just my eyes open before I have to ever get up. Do you get that feeling when you have to wake up at 4 a.m. and you're up at 3 no matter what? And you're worried you're going to sleep through the alarm? No. So my alarm goes off, and I'm a quick out-of-bed guy. I'm not sort of the snooze person. I don't snooze. I don't sort of dither around. When it's time to get up, I get up, and whenever my eyes open, that's the time to get up. So the first thing I do is I make sure, this is unbelievable, but yes, it's true, I make sure that all my electronic devices have been fully charged. Because how many times have you woken up and then you start your day and your phone or your iPad or something that you need during the course of the day, you thought you charged it, but in actuality, you didn't. So I check to make sure that everything's charged. Once that happens, I, <laughs> this is, is this TMI? I go to the bathroom because I still at age, I'm turning 52. I'm not one of those four times in the middle of the night guy. I actually get through the night. I'm only in bed for a few hours, so maybe that's the difference. But I'm out of bed. And then if it's a running day, which most days are, the first thing I do is I have my running clothes and they are set up to, to run. And the way I set up my clothes is that they're in a, in a pile in a drawer, and I take the top of the shorts pile, and then I decide tank top t-shirt, and then the socks are in an order, and then my running shoes are in an order. I have three pairs of running shoes that I rotate, and I always take the top level, layer, and then after laundry, those go to the bottom. So you're always wearing something new and not wearing the same thing over and over. So I'll go out and I do a run in Fort Lauderdale. I really try not to put my sneakers on for under five miles unless I'm in the middle of a training program, which has me, which calls for a four mile run. But generally, the training programs I use, five would be the minimum. On days of a long run, I'll make sure that I have a peanut butter sandwich or I just go out and do a quick run. Then I come back, and the first thing I do is I get on the phone and I look at Twitter. And I've been doing that now since I got on, which was October of 17. And I really use Twitter for the news, see what's going on in the news, see whether or not there is something I need to deal with that I need to speak to Coca about as I prepare for today's show. So the show is completed the night before, but we always add things in the next day. 
So then I ha- I do the same shower. I do it the same way every day. I wash myself in the same order. I, I, you know, people have told me that's an OCD thing. To me, it's not. It's an age thing. It's so I don't forget any part of my body. Because if I went out of order, then maybe I'd forget to wash my hair. I'm not the guy who has to wash his hair twice. You, this has happened to you, I know it, where you can't remember whether or not you actually washed your hair. So I do that, and then my clothes for the day are always, again, the shirt all the way to the right, the pants all the way to the left, the blazer all the way to the left, the underwear on top, the socks that are in the front of the sock sort of rotating drawer. So it's very easy for me to get dressed. I don't think about what I wear. It's whatever's next. And then I go into the office. What we do in the studio at CBS HQ, the first thing that happens is we go through what's called the rundown. The rundown is, hey, what are the topics we're talking about? What's come up that's new? And if there's nothing, we stay with what we had had. And then Matthew Coca goes through and creates what's called the title bars that you see if you watch the show on YouTube. And uh, or if you're listening, he's just creating sort of uh, topics, if you will to explain to viewers what I'm talking about. The show then tapes from 2 to 2.45, and then I do a tweet with some video that I give to Coca that that he tweets for me with the video. I don't know how to tweet video, so whenever you see video on my Twitter, that's actually coming from Coca. And yes, I do change my password every other day because the thought of him tweeting other things on my behalf is something I can't possibly stomach. So then after that, I would head back to my apartment if I have plans for that evening, or I just go back and I watch a movie. Either way, there's a movie that gets watched or a TV show or some sort of series that gets watched after I tape the show, and that gives me what I'm reviewing the next day. Then there's a dinner. I rarely go out to dinner during the week. I'm always paying attention to what's going on in sports, business, entertainment, putting my show together, and then I end up getting into bed, I would say, around 10, 30, 11, and I stay awake doing whatever it is that one does in bed late at night, like watching TV. (laughs) Relax, Mikey. This is not explicit. I'm just saying that I can't sleep well. So I watch TV. I read a little bit. I watch another episode of a series. I'll watch another episode of a series I've already seen. So there's always stuff you can do. And then I'll fall asleep and start it again the next day. That is my daily routine. I'm not currently training for a marathon, but I expect to do at least one marathon this year. But I'm in shape. This past weekend, I ran 10 miles in Fort Lauderdale, no problem. It's not glamorous. And I know that uh, people think when you're in the media or when you've got a sort of high profile job, when I was with the Marlins, let's say, daily routine really is a routine. Uh, So that is, I appreciate that question. Next one. This is one that I'm actually surprised that uh, someone asked me and I'm more surprised that I agreed to answer it, but I did. And the question is, Are you as honest in your private life as you are on the air? That is a very personal question, and the name of my show is Nothing Personal, but I felt like I wanted to respond to this one because it gives me an opportunity to explain to you all something. The people you see on TV and the people, the athletes who we deify, this has happened a lot right? When you have a role model who's an athlete and then the athlete does something, misbehaves or an actor who you love as an actor and then turns out to be on the opposite political spectrum that you're on. These things happen often. And one of the things that I never understood is how do you not know that athletes and actors are playing a role? So you ask me, am I honest in real life the way I am on the air? And the answer is yes. And The reason I am is, I have another word for that. It's being straightforward. Am I perfect? No, of course not. You show me a perfect person and I'll show you someone who's delusional and lying to you. But what I do is I don't mix words. So when I'm with someone in the studio and something is really good, I say it. If something isn't good, in my opinion, I say it. And being that straightforward in my business career has been extremely helpful, but it's caused some calamities for me personally, because people aren't used to dealing with someone who is so straightforward and so not full of it. And I love being that way because eventually people catch on and people are respectful of the fact that, hey, you are going to tell me how it is. So when someone has food in their teeth, I'll tell them. And it makes people uncomfortable, but I want people to tell me when I've got a head of lettuce in my teeth. When I smell or when someone smells or when there's something going on, I'm okay saying it because I think they'd want to know. And I'm not talking from a cultural standpoint. I'm saying like it just happened in the studio. 
there were chicken wings being eaten, and Amanda, who is an anchor here, who's fantastic, she smelled of chicken wings. And I told her that, and she looked at me and smiled and said, anyone else telling me that, I'm sort of looking askance at. But you tell me I smell, and the bottom line is I smell. And then she said, by the way, that's my perfume. And we had a small argument, and we moved along. The point is that if you can be straightforward with people, you should, but you also need to recognize that the part I play when you see me on TV or hear me on radio, some of that is a character. The character is David Sampson, but I am not on display at all times in my private life. The people who know me know me totally differently than the people who think they know me from listening to me or seeing me or, or being a Marlins fan or a baseball fan or now a CBS Sports HQ fan or a nothing personal fan. I am genuine on nothing personal. That This is me. I am, this is my voice, I'm direct, I have opinions. I'm not a robot though in real life. Of course I have emotion, I hide it a lot, and it's something that I work on all the time. I don't know how to express myself as well as I'd like to, I don't communicate as well as I'd like to, but if you're asking me how I do it on the air, it's because there's a clarity of mind when I'm doing the show that enables me basically to talk about subjects in an articulate way it, do you know how hard it is to look as though I'm unprepared every single show? How much work and preparation that actually takes to just talk without notes for 45 minutes every day and try to be entertaining and informative? To do that, it takes work and preparation and sort of a steadfast ability to put blinders on. And that's how I am in business. But personally, I, I really cannot be that way uh, because when you try to be that way personally, it actually impacts your relationships with friends and family. I appreciate that question. That's an interesting one. I spent a lot of time deciding whether or not, I was speaking to Mikey about this, who's putting the show together with me, and whether or not we were gonna do this one, because that's a sort of off-topic personal one, but I appreciate you asking it. You know, this next one, written by a couple people, I think two people actually wrote the same one. Is that right, Mikey, is this two? When you have two names in a parentheses, or is that one name? One name only. So if I could undo one of the decisions I made in my career of running a team, what would it be? If I could undo one decision that I made. So the reason I chose that question is that, um, well, A, thanks for saying it. And I think about this every day. I think about different decisions I've made and what I would undo. There's two things specifically uh, that I would undo. The first one is I got off to a very bad start with the former mayor of the city of Miami. His name is Manny Diaz. Manny Diaz happens to be the father of the current coach of the Miami Hurricanes. And uh, Manny is a tough man. And he was a strong mayor, pun intended. He is a brilliant orator. He has a desire to serve his community in a way that most politicians do not. And when I first was dealing with him to get a ballpark, I was young for sure. Remember when I, when I moved to Florida to run the Marlins from Montreal, my first year, I was 34 years old. And I look back at 34 year olds and I just can't believe that's what I was doing. Moving a team to my, from the Expos from Montreal to Florida, trying to build a ballpark, trying to be the president of a team that had just been sold by John Henry in a market that had won a World Series in 97, gone through a major fire sale, having come from two tumultuous years with the Expos, where I started when I was 31 years old, I became executive vice president of the Expos. And uh, my first meetings with the Honorable Mayor Manny Diaz were terrible. I was this young hotshot thinking I was way cooler than I was, thinking that I knew Miami better than I did, thinking that I'd come in and take care of everything. And I, I just came off terribly. And he and I were at odds for many, many years. And life is short. And I don't enjoy having enemies, earned enemies is what I'll say. I actually love having enemies who don't know me and just think I'm an enemy because of what they think about me. Uh, that I'm totally fine with. What I don't like is when someone gets to know me and thinks that I'm not being fair or reasonable because people may not agree with me, but I'm always going to be 
honest and fair and reasonable. But Mayor Diaz thought I was neither of those things, and it took many, many years. We finally did a stadium deal together. Seven years later, we signed the documents in 2009. We spent many of those interim years not talking. Uh, he had a city manager named Joe Ariola, who was just a bear of a man, who I have not really spoken to since. But Manny and I now speak pretty consistently. And I've grown up, and I've gotten older, and I've recognized that he had a role to play. And it's funny because I talk to you all about the role I play, and then I have to think about the fact that he was playing a role too. He was protecting the city of Miami as best as he could. And he recognized that he was probably going to be out negotiated because the county was so involved, and negotiating with the county was interesting, to say the least. That's a whole different... No one asked me about that. So I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to answer a question you didn't ask. So you said, what is it that I could undo? The decision I would undo is the internal decision I made. This is the first one. To take on this persona that I belonged in a room with the mayors and politicians and governor of the state of Florida at a, such a young age without having earned the right to be in that room negotiating those deals I had the job, I had the ability, and I got it done. But the way I treated Manny Diaz is a decision that I made, and I, I'm i really sorry that I did that. I regret that. The second decision that I would undo, if I could, if I could, and I don't think I can, and I think it's way too late. I talked about this on Nothing Personal, I believe, it's funny. I've got a I've got a weird memory affliction. Have you guys ever seen I like saying of you guys cuz I'm talking to people who are listening and I have no feedback coming to me from anyone cuz I'm in a room that's dark and quiet. But there's a movie called 51st Dates. And in that movie with Adam Sandler, it is a uh there's a short-term memory person who doesn't have a mem- good memory. My memory is horrific and I don't know what that is. Is it Ambien? I don't know, although I just lost a sponsorship of Ambien by saying that. What would be the reason that I don't have a good memory? Do I not pay attention enough? I've been accused of that. I don't think that's it. I just think as you get older, your word recall, you know, the tip of your tongue situation when a word is on the tip of your tongue, but you can't say it. So I've got recall issues. I can't exactly remember everything I do on nothing personal. As a matter of fact, totally off the subject. Hey, it's the bonus show. I can be off the subject. I was asked one day by someone, um, Tell me about the show yesterday because I had a question about your view of X. And I said to the person, I actually don't recall talking about that. And the person said, are you kidding me? It was an entire segment. And I explained exactly what happens during the taping of a nothing personal episode. We don't edit. So as you probably have figured out by listening to the episodes, we don't edit. I talk for 45 minutes. If I make a mistake, if I cough, if I flub a word, if I don't get information right, whatever the case is, we go with it. And I wanted it to be genuine with you guys. I didn't want it to be where I do a segment, then I stop, then we make it right, then we cut it, and then we put music in. I wanted it to be exactly me, exactly nothing personal with me. And the way I explain it to people is a movie called Old School. I hope many of you have seen Old School. It's starring Will Ferrell and Luke Wilson, and uh, that's Owen Wilson's brother. It's phenomenal. Actually, the woman in it is the woman from Grey's Anatomy. Ellen Pompeo, I believe is her name, is the girlfriend. So Will Ferrell is phenomenal in this movie, and they're trying to become a fraternity. And to do it, they have to take all these tests at the end. And one of the tests is debate. And he has to debate with, uh, with James Carville. And Will Ferrell goes into this unbelievable monologue. And then he finishes. And someone says, my God, you were brilliant. Do you have any idea how good you just were? And Will Ferrell looks at the person and says, I have no idea what you're even talking about. He said he went into this zone, like the dead zone, where he, where he starts talking and words just come out. And then when he's done, he doesn't even know what he said. So sometimes when I'm doing the episodes, I feel as though that's what's happening to me, that I'm talking about something And I know what I wanted to talk about, but then I can't remember it. So Will Ferrell, thank you for that. Helps me explain. So the second decision that I regret is when in 2012, uh, we had to make all those trades to the Blue Jays. I don't regret the trade. What I regret is the friendship lost with Mark Burley and his wife, Jamie. 
and I regret the fact that I had to call Mark Burley instead of seeing him. I always tried to do things in person. I always tried to make it as though I would tell players in person what we were doing with them. I was always very communicative with players because I wanted them to know. And I called Mark. He had no idea what was happening. I hadn't warned him. And very often I'd spoken to players before they were going to be traded. And I absolutely regret that. Thank you for that question. Segways on to who am I closest to personally as a player? Uh, which players? The answer is an easy one. Uh, my closest friend is Jeff Conine, a former player. And uh, he and I met in 2003 when we traded for him. I hated him when we traded for him because I'd never met him. And his wife was such a pain in the neck during the trade negotiation. And it turns out that his wife is a lovely woman who I love very much now. And uh, But at the time, she was just a name that was being given to me by the agent. And it turns out that his agent, a guy named Michael Watkins, also is a great guy. And, and if you give people a chance, first impressions may not be final impressions. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Jeff Conine is someone who I've had that relationship with. I did the Ironman in Hawaii. He had to beat me. He did it and beat me by 40 minutes a few years later. He did the seven marathons in seven days with me. We have traveled the world together. We have had talks about baseball, about life. He is just someone who is a, a lifetime friend, partner, close friend. I love him very much. So that's an easy one. Mr. Marlin is the man who I'm closest to personally from my business career. So next topic, next question. This is a funny one, actually. How did Major League Baseball deal with Las Vegas as a future site of MLB? I like that. Let me tell you, I want to tell you a story about Las Vegas that you're going to be surprised about. Before Las Vegas got hockey with the Golden Knights, and before they got uh, football with the Oakland Raiders now moving to Las Vegas and being the Las Vegas Raiders, there were no professional sports in Vegas. There was a question. Baseball would have meetings where relocation was a real possibility. Expansion was something that was being talked about, but Oakland, Tampa, and Miami needed new ballparks desperately. And Vegas was an open market. And to me, Vegas was a perfect market. But Commissioner Bud Selig back in the old days, Rob Manford is the commissioner now, but when I first started, he was not. And he had something against gambling, Bud did something against Vegas as a city. And I always felt like baseball needed to be the first into Vegas. The first sport in there was going to get a huge lift, and it's happened with the Golden Knights in hockey. They are so popular. Will the Raiders take over? Maybe. But the Knights have a two-season head start, a huge fan base, and I thought that building a stadium in Vegas would be great. And I went to baseball during the negotiations back in 2003, 4, 5, when we couldn't get a ballpark in Miami, and we talked to baseball about getting permission to move to Vegas. And the way we decided on, as Vegas, one of the cities, we looked at several cities, but Vegas was my personal favorite for myriad reasons not the least of which is I love being there and I love the friends who I have there. And I love the untapped market potential there because I reimagined what a baseball stadium would be. Here's one of the things I heard from people about Vegas, and this is what we talked about. They'll never let you there. Casinos will never let you build a baseball stadium in Vegas. And I said, why not? And they said, they don't want people out of their casinos. They don't want other entertainment options. And I said, no, you don't get it. Let me explain to you how this is going to work. The kind of ballpark I want to build in Las Vegas will have only premium seats, suites, and bleachers. There's always a worry about having cheap seats, cheap enough for people so they can come and have a low price point. No problem. We'll have plenty of those seats. I said half the stadium will be tickets under $5, $10, and I'll put it in writing. And I didn't care whether or not we had 30,000 people at a game or 30 people. That's something that people are surprised with me about in Vegas. The thing that you have to know in Vegas, it doesn't matter how many people go to the games. Why am I saying that? Because the deal to move to Vegas comes with a deal with the casinos that they are pre-buying seats and suites, giving it to their clients, to their employees, to their gamblers. And then if those people come, great. If they don't come, fine. Either way, it is revenue to the team. 
I was perfectly comfortable playing in a completely empty ballpark that was full of revenue. Players would say, that's crazy. I love playing in front of people. I love the energy. Fans would say, are you kidding? You don't care about having a great atmosphere and having people come through the turnstiles. And my answer is no. I care about making sure that we can make money and have a good team. And I'm not going to piss off the casinos and say I'm taking people away from the roulette table or the slot machines. Opposite. You buy the seats. You pay for the food up front. If people come, they come. If they don't, they don't. What about TV market in Vegas? It's fine. I wanted to make sure that we got some of the surrounding areas. We wanted a bigger sort of uh, footprint to sell to, to get more subscribers. The way TV revenue happens, it's based on subscribers, more so than advertising revenue, more so than ratings. It's on how many subscribers are in the area where you have the exclusive right. So there was a negotiation with baseball about that. I think Vegas is an outstanding city, but now it's too late. I do not think Vegas is a three-sport town. And that's something that baseball is going to have to struggle with and realize that they missed it. They missed it, and they can't go back. You've got hockey, you've got football, and that's all there's going to be. There's a minor league team there now, a triple-A team, but there will not be Major League Baseball in Vegas. For Tampa and Oakland, if they don't get stadiums, they're going to relocate, but you will not see Vegas as a possible relocation target. Good question. Okay, next question. This was sort of a long one. People wanted to, I, I talked about arbitration before, and I want to talk about arbitration again in baseball. And it was about whether or not, what, what is sort of the backstory with arbitration? And my backstory is the following. I talked to you a lot about a concept called file to go in arbitration. That is when we exchange numbers with players. And once we exchange numbers, we are going to a arbitration. Just a one-minute quick summary of what that means. For the first three years of, baseball, of a baseball player's career, the team decides the salary of that player unilaterally. The second three years, the salary is either agreed upon between the player and the team or an arbitrator decides what the salary will be. And then if a player has been around for six years or more, that player is a free agent and can get paid whatever he can get paid. And I told the story about arbitration and how we always made sure that our players would know that if we file a number because you won't agree to a contract when you're between three and six years of experience, we're going to the room. And in the room, we are going to argue in front of three arbitrators why we think the number that we're offering is better than the number you're asking for. And is it uncomfortable sometimes? No. One of the most common questions I'm asked, how do you sit across from the table of one of your own players and tell them that they stink? And my answer is with a straight face. Do you know that I never met Kevin Gregg, the former pitcher? We traded for Kevin Gregg. The first time I ever met the guy was in the arbitration room across the table. Ended up being someone who I very much enjoyed, had a great relationship with, Kevin Gregg. I went across the table from two of my closest friends in the game, Cody Ross and Dan Ugla, Miguel Cabrera, you name it. We've been in front, we've been in the table with these players. Why do we do it? The reason we do it is that when the players know that I'm serious and no matter what, if we don't have an agreement by the date of exchanging numbers, we're going to the room, it forces a player to give a lower number. Here's the example. Houston did it this year with George Springer. They offered him, let's say, $22 million. They offered him $17.5 million, I'm sorry, and George Springer wanted $22 million. That's a $5 million difference. They ended up settling their case because George Springer asked for a number that was way higher than he expected to get, and they settled on a number in the middle. When we go to arbitration, we offer, let's say, $7 million, and the player wants $7.3 million. That sort of small spread, $300,000, what that means is that the truth is, and I would never tell the players this, I would never say this until now that I'm out of the game. When we went to arbitration, this is like a secret, I never cared if we won or lost because we already won. Because you all, you players, filed such a low number that either way we won. So all of the angst that people would say I would feel about going into the room against a player 
this was like a free swing for us because the other players would file such low numbers. And ironically, the players would tell me, hey, we're going to the room. It's a free swing. We're trying to just see if we can get that extra couple hundred grand. Great. We both go to the room. No problem with me. So again, when you are dealing with your employees, if you have rules and you have leverage, you have to use it. Because I assure you that your employers will use it against you as employees. And whatever leverage you have as employees, you have to use it. Do you know how many people I come across who don't actually know the terms of their own employment? Who don't know the benefits of their own employment agreement or their own pension plan or their own insurance plan? They don't bother to read any of the documents that HR gives them their first day on the job. I would count on that as a team owner that people aren't going to pay attention. The fact is, I would always protect people from themselves. But in other businesses, big businesses like CBS, you think CBS is protecting all the employees who are making 50 or 100 grand a year? No. Let's face it. They're a big company. And the HR department gives you the information, you've got to read it. And that's the same way it is with arbitration and collective bargaining. If players don't think that I'm going to take advantage of the collective bargaining agreement and every right that I have, you're wrong because I know that your union is reading the same agreement and taking every advantage that you can take as a player. The follow-up question there was about, uh, are there any contracts where I thought I'd committed robbery with the terms that were agreed upon? So I'm going to give you an example of a contract. Uh, there is no contract that I ever signed where I felt as though it was unfair from the start on the low side. So I want to explain what that means. When we've signed a free agent, and I've talked about, say, Jared Salt to Lamakia, from the minute that deal was signed, three years, I don't know, $21, $24 million, I don't have Coca here to Google it, whatever it was, I knew from the beginning that was an overpay. I knew that I was robbed. Our team was robbed. There's no contract that I've ever done or negotiated where I thought, wow, I win. But in the rearview mirror, we've won more than our fair share. I want to bring you back and tell you a story, because I have time, about Christian Yelich and how that deal was signed. And the question was asked about any contract where I thought maybe robbery was committed. I negotiated personally with Christian Yelich, along with Mike Hill, who was then the GM, president of baseball operations. And the end of the deal was done just with me and Christian and actually the manager's clubhouse in spring training. He and I sat down not behind the desk, that's the manager's desk. No matter what role you have, you don't sit in the manager's chair. You always sit in his guest chairs, even as president of the team. And uh, we offered him a deal that at the time was a record for his experience. The fact that he had not really hit for power yet, the fact that he had not won any MVPs, finished in the top five in any MVPs, we just knew that he was gonna be good but we also knew that he wanted to get financial security. And we offered him a seven-year deal. At first it was five, four, three, four, five. When we guaranteed the extra two years and paid him in guaranteed money, that's when he agreed. Do you know the end of the Christian Yelich deal? If you ask Yelly, he'll tell you this. The final negotiation between me and Christian Yelich, this is absolutely a true story was literally three minutes. In three minutes, I said to Yelich, we're in spring training, we're not negotiating during the season, now or never. Yelly, what is it you need to sign? Yelly said, you gotta guarantee these extra years. I said, both, because there were two option years at the time. I said, let's talk about one. He said, I want both. I said, yes. He said, yes. We had a deal. It was three minutes after quite a few negotiations, but he got two extra years guaranteed. And what's ironic is if Yelly tells you now, he got robbed. And there, if he were a free agent now, you're right. He is so good. We, for anyone who tells you that we knew Yelich would be this, we knew he'd be one of the best. We didn't think he'd be this. But man, he is amazing. So Yelly, we robbed you, but we certainly didn't know it at the time. Okay. Ooh, I like this one. Who's the most famous person or celebrity you have met where you felt starstruck? Who is the most famous person or celebrity where I felt starstruck? Ooh, okay. That's, that's a good one. 
I, you know, I'm a movie person. And uh, so I've gotten a chance to meet a lot of people in the movies. And I got a chance at an auction to bid on being an extra in a Farrelly Brothers movie. Farrelly Brothers did There's Something About Mary, uh, Dumb and Dumber, one of my favorite movies. And I bid for the right to be an extra in a movie called The Three Stooges. So I flew to Atlanta and spent the day filming a scene with the Three Stooges. I never got to meet Sofia Vergara. That would have been awesome. She was in that movie. But I got to hang out all day with Peter and Bobby Farrelly, especially Peter Farrelly. Peter Farrelly just won the Oscar last year for Green Book, and I was starstruck by him. He wanted to talk baseball, and we're still in touch. We still text and email, and now it's become normalized. And I've hung out with people from, and we've talked about J-Lo, Mark Anthony, Alan Alda, baseball players, basketball players, Barry Bonds. It doesn't matter. There was something about Peter Farrelly that I, I could barely talk. And what happened when we were filming the scene, if you go watch Three Stooges at the end, I don't have actually any lines, but I have a facial expression. And we had to do 12 takes of my little one scene because he didn't like my facial expression. And go back and look at Three Stooges at the end. And what's actually put in was take like eight of 12. And the stars of the movie were getting so impatient because I'm just an extra. They saw me as this, they knew I was the president of a team. They saw me wearing my World Series ring, but they didn't care. It was 90 degrees at that house in Atlanta where we were filming. There were fans everywhere. There were people trying to cool you off. There was food and drink and ice and umbrellas where people could stand under. And I kept having to redo it and fairly kept yelling, cut, Samson, it's too much. It's too much. Fairly kept yelling that. I was starstruck all day that day, Peter. Now I'm not, but I definitely was that day. Thank you. Ooh, okay. All right, I had a few choices for one, and I'm doing this one. As a sports fan, did you ever have any moments as an executive when you felt unworthy of the room you were in? Perfect. Here's why that one is such an enjoyable one for me. I have a friend. His name is Moshe Horn. I went to law school with him. I met him on the first day of law school at Cardoza School of Law in New York. And in law school, in the beginning, you're all put into sections. And the people you meet in your section, you're clinging on to them for dear life because you're all so scared. And you're all pretty sure that you're going to fail out. And you all don't know what to expect in law school. And I was just out of college. I was 22 years old. And I met this guy, Moshe, and we became fast friends. Often the first people you meet when you go to a place, you cling on to them but they don't end up being your long-term friends. I call it, I'm going to call out a name. Is that nice to do? I'm doing it. And I don't mean to any offense. Gary Lesser, if you're out there, Gary Lesser, I use your name all the time. And I use it as a verb and an adjective. Have you been Gary Lessered? So if you know Gary Lesser, you can let him know. Gary Lesser was the first friend I had in law school. And I thought that we'd be friends and, and long-term friends. And we ended up not being but I'll, because I ended up meeting other people, he met other people, and we became more comfortable. It's like when you first get to college, you meet your roommate, and you say, oh my God, I better hang out with my roommate. But the reality was that we didn't hang out much after the beginning. And what was always interesting to me is that I met other people and became lifelong friends who I'm still close with. Mo Horn is one of the first few people I met. And he, big sports fan, and we talk Knicks, huge Knicks fan. We talk Knicks, we talk baseball, basketball, life, we talk movies. And sometimes he'll read about me because he knows me as David Sampson. He's a friend. He knows, he knows me. He's known me before I was in baseball. He knew me as a, as a first-year law student. And then he sees me on TV or listens to me on radio. And sometimes he just sort of smiles at some of the things that are written about me or said about me or some of the experiences I've had. And Moshe Horn asks me this question a lot when he reads about something. He read about the negotiation with Giancarlo Stanton at a hotel in Beverly Hills and said, you're sitting in a room with Giancarlo Stanton. Does that make you feel strange, right? That you're negotiating a deal with Giancarlo Stan? No, that wasn't it. But here's the room where I felt as though that I was having an out-of-body experience. I was in a room interviewing Barry Bonds to become a hitting coach for the Marlins after he had basically been blackballed from baseball. 
Couldn't find a job. This is the greatest baseball player I had ever seen. This is a man who I knew had done steroids, but I also knew that I was looking at just a talent that you cannot explain. I'd heard so much about him personally, all of this stuff. I I didn't judge him because I didn't know him. And I was sitting in a room asking him questions about becoming a hitting coach. And I was thinking to myself, this is David Sampson, a little five foot five Jewish boy from New York City, in a room with Barry Bonds, talking about hiring him, where I would then spend a year with him, regretting the very moment that we agreed to hire him. And the luster of my view of Barry, it's sort he's a good guy. He really is. He just wasn't a good hitting coach. Very frustrating to have him as a hitting coach. He just, you can't be that good a player. You know, this going back to one of the first questions, if I could undo one of the decisions I made, would I undo making him hitting coach? No, because I got to spend a season talking to him and learning from him and making my own judgments about Barry Bonds, the man, Barry Bonds, the coach, Barry Bonds, the player. And you don't really get to know someone until you spend time with them. So having the opportunity to do that was phenomenal. But I remember sitting in that room thinking, what am I doing? There's no way. But I was there. There was a way. Barry Bonds. I got a great Bond story for you. I don't know if, I, I don't know if I've told the Barry Bonds, D. Gordon story. I think I have. This is an example where I can't remember. Have I, Mikey, I have not, never told the Barry Bonds, D. Gordon story. Okay, Mikey, who listens to 30% of 40% of the episodes, says that I haven't. By the way, 30% of 40%, yes, you're correct. That means he's listened to 12% of all of the episodes. So 88% chance I've told this story. But I'm going to be quick. When D. Gordon announced to the team that he had been suspended for steroids for 80 games, we made him say it in front of the clubhouse in Los Angeles Barry Bonds was a coach at the time. I had had a meeting with D. Gordon prior to him addressing the team. D. cried. I was freaking out, so angry at D. And we made him address his team. He addressed the team, told us, told the team he was being suspended. And Barry Bonds in the back of the room, I crap you not, Barry Bonds turns around, walks out of the clubhouse, and slams the door behind him while the rest of us are in a meeting listening to D. Gordon. Slams the door in disgust. And I looked at Mike Hill and P.J. Loyello, who's now the chief communications officer of the Ottawa Senators, and I said, are you joking? Barry Bonds just stormed out of a room with D. Gordon being suspended? Oh, I get it. Is that because he forgot to give D. his masking agent? Nah, I'm sort of kidding. I'm not kidding about the fact that he stormed out. What a memory that was. It was a joke. I forgive you, D, now, because I'm out of the game. Okay, I'm going to finish this episode with the final. The final one was this. I released, I told you all know I watch a movie every day. Mikey, how's this one going, do you think? Are we flowing okay? Okay. So, Mikey, by the way, he just nodded. So I think that's a nod. I think I just woke him. So I get asked all the time about my top movies. So yes, I do have a list of top 100 movies. I adjust it all the time, and I've never released it. But there was a bonus pod I did over Christmas where I started with movies 100 to 81, and I was asked to please continue unveiling that list. So I will. I thank you for reviewing me. Remember, you're listening to a bonus pod. These are all questions that were asked of me by people on Apple reviewing the pod. And I'm going to do this at the end of every month, and it'll be released at the end of every month. Ask a question, rate, review, make sure it's an evergreen question. Don't ask me about the game the night before. I'm going to talk about general topics that will hold interest. So thank you for doing that. Following me on Twitter, David P. Sampson, downloading, subscribing, rating, reviewing, asking questions. We will do this again next month. But here we go. I guarantee you next month I'm going to give you another movie set of movies. But this month, movies 80 through 61. I'll tweet these out as well, but I'm going to quickly go through my list because you're listening, so you don't have to write them down. I'll tweet them. Number 80, all time, one of my favorites, Jim Carrey, The Truman Show. 
I I watch the Truman Show. That's one of my always movies. An always movie is a movie that when it's on, I will watch to the end from whatever point it is in the movie. A Few Good Men is a movie like that. Ed TV with Matthew McConaughey is a movie like that. The Truman Show is a movie like that. No matter where it is, I'm watching to the end. Brilliant. Laura Linney's in it. Ed Harris. The Truman Show, directed by Peter Weir, who incidentally, spoiler alert, directed my all-time number one movie. 79, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. If you haven't seen Sam Rockwell play Chuck Barris in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, you have not watched enough movies. 78, Field of Dreams. Doesn't There's nothing needs to be said. Why did I put League of Their Own at 77 ahead of Field of Dreams? I asked myself that, and when I look at the list, do you know when I change the list from time to time, Field of Dreams and League of Their Own switch places? It sort of depends what I'd seen last because I cry at the end of both of them. League of Their Own, where they cut the Hall of Fame ribbon because I've been to the Hall of Fame. I didn't get to that question. I'll get to it maybe next month about my experience in Cooperstown with Andre Dawson. That was a great question. Sorry, I didn't get to it, but I will. And then Field of Dreams, you want to have a catch? I mean, how do you not? How do you not? 76 is Marriage Story. That's this year's movie, Marriage Story, debuted in my top 100 at 76. Difficult movie. Watch it. Minority Report, number 75. Don't say you don't like Tom Cruise. It's brilliant. 74, Finding Neverland. Forget that Johnny Depp is crazy, because he is. But this with Kate Winslet is a, um, it's not about Michael Jackson. That's all I'll say, Finding Neverland. 73 is Midnight Run with Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro. I, I That is a movie that, oh my God. How do you not laugh? How do you not touch your watch and tap on it and look at it? Just see that. River Runs Through It is 72. Robert Redford is the narrator. Brad Pitt's in it. It's a movie that is filmed that makes me want to move to Montana. It is one of those movies that the cinematography is beautiful. The dialogue, it's tragic. It's funny. It's interesting. It's sad. It's perfect. 71 is an older movie called Missing. Missing is a movie with uh, uh, Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek about a man who disappears during a coup and uh, ends up getting killed. Not a spoiler alert. It's called Missing from the early 80s. Number 70 is Arthur, the first Arthur, the one with Dudley Moore and Bo Derek. No, no, that's 10. I'm just kidding. It's Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli. Get to it. It's Arthur. Don't watch the Russell Brand one. 69 is Inside Out, animated. La La Land, 68, won the Oscar. No, it didn't. Yes, it did. Wait, let me ask Warren Beatty. Did La La Land win the Oscar? No, that's right. It did not. But Emma Stone did, best actress. Ryan Gosling's in it. The music is perfect. The direction's perfect. It is exactly what you want to believe LA is and know that it's not. Number 67, please watch The Sure Thing. Nicolette Sheridan is The Sure Thing. John Cusack, Daphne Zuniga. You know all these actors. Nicolette Sheridan. John Cusack drives cross-country because he's guaranteed to have sex with Nicolette Sheridan. Who wouldn't drive cross-country to have sex with Nicolette Sheridan? She was a sure thing. A perfect 10 when, when Bo Derek was not available. That's another perfect 10 reference. Google it. Trust me. Make sure you're alone when you do. The sure thing. Great movie. 66, War of the Roses. Oliver Stone. No. Not Oliver Stone. I'm joking. His name is Oliver. It's Michael Douglas. It's Kathleen Turner. It's a marriage gone wrong with Danny DeVito as the divorce attorney. And the line that I use from War of the Roses, this is not about winning. It's about degrees of losing. And that's a line that I've used from time to time in business situations when I'm negotiating a deal or something's going on with a player or somebody. I'll say, listen, this is not about winning. This is about degrees of losing. It's called War of the Roses. 65 is Silkwood, Meryl Streep and Cher. If you haven't seen Silkwood, if you're worried about the coronavirus, right, and you're freaking out right now, right, outbreak, contagion, Silkwood is way better than all these movies. It's a true story. And this is a movie about a woman who works at a nuclear power plant who gets exposed to radiation, who actually finds out that the nuclear power plant, this is like pre-Aaron Brockovich. In New York City, when I grew up, there's a tunnel right on Park Avenue, in the middle of Park Avenue, 46th and Park to 44th, there's sort of a tunnel you go through. And there was always a graffitied line, you'll know what I'm talking about, that said Silkwood was here. I grew up with that, Silkwood. 
scary and true. 64 is true romance. Quentin Tarantino, before he was directing, wrote true romance. Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, before she became so politically inclined. Please watch true romance. Brilliant. Apollo 13 is 63. Houston, we have a problem. 62 is Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi, as in Ben Kingsley, played Gandhi. That is the greatest performance by a man of another living man I've ever seen to this day. We've had some amazing Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill in The Darkest Hours. Incredible Oscar-winning performance. Child's play compared to Ben Kingsley in Gandhi. It's a long movie, but it's worth it. You want to learn? You, you're, you like Martin Luther King and what he stands for? Take a look at Gandhi. 61, final one, Inglorious Bastards. Yes, Inglorious Bastards. I have it above True Romance. Is that my highest Quentin Tarantino movie? Wait to see. Well, I'm out of time. I appreciate the fact that we did this bonus pod. Hope I answered some of your questions. I didn't get to all of them. We'll do it again next month. Until then, remember when you're listening, when you're watching, when you're thinking about great topics or you're wondering what's in my mind, I'll tell you right now, it's business. It's nothing personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.